Come follow me, the Savior said, then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we be one with God's own This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, a weekly podcast dedicated to my musings and observations on the New Testament and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more content, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Hey y'all, welcome back to The Savior Said. We are on July 15th through 21st, Acts 10 through 15, The Word of God Grew and Multiplied. And so we are going to be talking about the spreading of the gospel to the Gentiles today. And I'm so excited to do that. Um, I don't know where you guys are around the world, but here in Alabama, it is roasting hot, (laughs) y'all. Like the real feel temperatures that, you know, not, not the actual temperature, but like with the humidity and stuff added onto it, are like 98 and 99. It's just hot. And this week was girls camp. I went out to girls camp and I taught a little workshop on the armor of God. I'm really excited when we get to that part in Ephesians. I'm going to have my whole lesson planned for you guys so you can do it with your kids. But, I mean, hats off to the girls and the leaders who are out there in this 90 plus degree heat um, where it's just stifling without air conditioning and the sacrifice that they're making to be out there to learn about Christ, to come unto Christ. I just think that's amazing. So shout out to all the girls and leaders who do are doing girls camp this summer. You guys are the bomb. Okay. Now, let's go ahead and jump right into our lesson. Um, We've got lots of travels with Paul this week. Peter gets his big vision about the Gentiles, and so we're going to be talking about all of it. All right? First up, we have the introduction. And one of the thoughts that I like from the introduction is it says, The idea of sharing the gospel with the Gentiles doesn't seem surprising today. So what's the lesson in this account for us? And this is what I was thinking about as I was going through this entire lesson. I'm like, what is the lesson here that I can learn from the sharing of the gospel with the Gentiles? You know, I don't think we have anything that's quite as, I guess, a big example of like what this meant at the time, you know, when Peter's getting this revelation. Um, And we're going to talk more about that in a minute, so I don't want to say too much about that. But I started thinking a lot this week, like, how do I go out of my way to bring the light of Christ into those who I normally wouldn't think of sharing it with? And, you know, maybe people and places that I would be a little bit uncomfortable with. How do I share my light with them? So that's what I've been thinking about a lot this week. The introduction also says, like Peter, we must be willing to accept continuing revelation and live by every word of God, including all that he has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and the many great and important things he will yet reveal pertaining to the kingdom of God. You know, that's from the article of Faith 9. But I think it's important to note that, you know, continuing revelation was happening there in the ancient church, just as continuing revelation happens today in the modern church. And I love when I see these correlations between what was happening in the New Testament and what's happening today. And it just kind of strengthens my testimony of our current church and the way it's set up and our current prophet, how he receives revelation that leads and guides the church. And I don't even know if he has ever received revelation that would be as divisive as the revelation that Peter experienced. But 
I'd like to believe that if he did, I would still happily follow him. Um, and it would strengthen my testimony, just like the early saints' testimonies was strengthened when they followed Peter. So um, I think it was just a really cool story. I really liked the story of it. So let's go in and let's talk about that. In Acts 10, this is the first section in Come Follow Me. God is no respecter of persons. And it says, For generations, the Jews had believed that being the seed of Abraham, or a literal descendant of Abraham, meant the person was accepted or chosen by God. Anyone else outside of this little circle was considered unclean, a Gentile who is not accepted by God. But in Acts 10, what did the Lord teach Peter about who is accepted with him? All right, now if we look in Acts 10, it's Acts 10, 35, and it says, But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. And so this is where Peter's sitting on the housetop of Simon the Tanner, which, by the way, pause. I want to rewind just a little bit. Peter is in the household of Simon the Tanner, and tanners were actually considered unclean because they came in so much contact with the dead body of animals and blood and stuff like that, and they actually lived on the outskirts of town so far away because the smells when you're tanning hide are just not very nice. (laughs) So they kind of had to live far away, so they were kind of like the outcasts of society, and so Peter decided he was going to go stay with this guy, which I think, you know, says, first of all, where Peter's head was at. You know, that he was already kind of staying with someone who was considered not necessarily the cleanest, you know, I'm saying that in quotation marks, the cleanest person in all of Jewish society. So his head was all already in kind of a good place. His heart was kind of already open, I, th- I see. And then he goes up on top of this guy's roof and he's sitting there and he's having this vision. And I think it's interesting too. He was, it says that he was up there in the ninth hour, which is like about three o'clock, right? So three o'clock is snack time right? It's snack time. It's it's a time where you go grab your little protein bar, your crackers or something, you know, to get you through till dinner. So Peter was hungry and he's up there and he's praying to the Lord. And this was a normal time of day that they would be praying to the Lord. You know, they had their little set times that they prayed. And I think it's so cool that the Lord works through our situations. And so the Lord's like, okay, you hungry, Peter? Let's talk about food. And he brings down this sheet, like a tablecloth, right? And he kind of unfolds it, and all these animals come out of it. And he says, you know, kill and eat, Peter. And Peter's like, no, no way. I see lots of unclean things in here. No, no, no. And um, the Lord says, you know, what I've called clean, don't call him clean. Like, you know, the Gentiles are cool. In every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted by me, is basically what he's saying to Peter. He's no respecter of persons. And so I think it's really cool that the Lord was able to use a human impulse like, hey, it's snack time, and turn it into a major revelation like, hey, the gospel needs to go to the Gentiles. Like, I just think it's an awesome example of how the Lord meets us where we are. And he takes our weaknesses, or he takes our quirks, and he makes them into something awesome. So, I wanted to share that. Okay, unpause. We'll keep going. All right, so the next question in Come Follow Me. What evidence do you find in this chapter that Cornelius was living a righteous life that was acceptable to the Lord? Okay, let's talk about Cornelius. I think Cornelius is really cool. So Acts 10.1, we read, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. So he's Roman. He's from Italy, you know, Rome. And he's a soldier. Obviously, he's a centurion. And he's obviously got some wealth because he's got a whole household here. And in two, we read, A devout man and one that 
that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. So we see here that he's a devout man. So he has faith and he's devout to the faith that he has so much so that he's been a missionary to the rest of his house and the rest of his servants and everyone who is in his house, you know, who takes care of his animals and his family, they all fear God too. They all worship God too. They're all devout as well. And not only do they have faith in God, but you know, they're walking the talk, right? They're living their faith. They're giving alms to the people. You know, he's a Roman soldier living in Jewish territory and he's giving money away to the poor. Like that would be crazy because the Romans looked down so much on the Jews to give money and alms, you know, away to the poor there where he was. Like that's a big deal, right? Apparently he was living so righteously that he was able to see a vision. And so in the ninth hour of the day, this is the same time of day that Peter is praying, you know, it's Peter snack time prayer, right? And so it's the same hour of the day that Cornelius is praying and he has this vision and the angel of God comes to him and says, Cornelius. And I love the like contrast between Cornelius's reaction and Peter's reaction where you know Cornelius says he was afraid he immediately respected the angel and said what is it Lord whereas we go to Peter and Peter is watching this sheet come down with all these animals coming out of it and you know the Lord saying kill and eat and Peter's like no right that's how typical Peter is that that's totally typical Peter like oh no I'd never deny you and then he goes and denies him and now the Lord's telling him hey you know you need to do this thing and he's like oh not so Lord no okay <laughs> poor Peter but we're all like that we're all like we all have those Peter moments where we're like no but Cornelius did not have a no moment Cornelius instead looked up respected him and said what is it Lord and he said unto him Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa, and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou ought to do. And when the angel which spake to Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, so let's look at seven and eight real quick. So he called two of his household servants and a soldier. So again, this shows what a great missionary, what a great spirit Cornelius had, that he had two servants and a soldier. Again, Roman soldiers, it would be really hard to convert them in the culture that they were at. But he had such a missionary zeal, I guess, that he had at least these three guys that he trusted enough to work on an errand in the name of his God. And it was not just any errand. He had this like charge from this angel, hey, go to this guy's house. There's going to be a guy there named Simon Peter, and you need to get him and bring him back. Cornelius knows, hey, I'm a Gentile. The guy that I'm going to go ask for is a Jew. Jews don't hang out with Gentiles. In fact, for a Jew to come underneath his roof, it would make the Jew unclean. And so he's like, he had no reason to think that Peter would actually come back except for his faith in the Lord and what the Lord has asked him to do. And so he sends these three men. They go on off and he sends them off to Joppa. And they go off to Joppa to Simon the Tanner's house and they get Peter, right? Going back to the original question that the section asked, it says, What evidence do you find in this chapter that Cornelius was living a righteous life that was acceptable to the Lord? Okay, so we read that he's devout, that he feared God, he spread the gospel to all those who are around him, all those who are in his care, he gave money away to the poor, he prayed to God 
always. And when the Lord asked him to do something, his answer was, yes, Lord, how high? Right? That was his answer was, what do you want? How can I do it? I will do it right away. You know, so that's some evidence I see there in that chapter that Cornelius was living a righteous life and it was acceptable unto the Lord. Plus, we even see in verse four where it says, thine alms are come up as a memorial before God. So it says, you know, hey, I see you, Cornelius. I see you over there. You know, you're doing good. Keep going, buddy. All right. Next question. Why is it important to know that God is no respecter of persons, meaning that all people can receive the blessings of the gospel if they live the gospel? And it tells us to look at 1 Nephi 17.35, and we will in a minute. But first, this is the scripture that we first hear from Peter about the Gentiles. And it says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecters of persons. God doesn't care who you are. He just wants you to know him. And that's what we learn from this particular scripture right here. And in 1 Nephi 17.35, we read, Behold, the Lord esteemeth all flesh in one. He that is righteous is favored of God. All right, I love that because here's the thing. When we know this, what people look like, what people smell like, where people live, what they believe, what they do, how they live their lives, it doesn't matter right? It doesn't matter. The Lord doesn't care about that. What the Lord cares about is those people coming unto him. And our jobs is not to go and judge those people or whatever they're doing. Our job is to go and reach out to them like Cornelius into his household and bring anyone in our sphere of influence to the Lord, right? That's our job. And as I was reading this week, y'all just follow me. You know, I go on some like weird little tangents here. Well, this is going to be a weird tangent. Okay. Um, And also I will say, to tell you the story, I want to make sure that this podcast is family friendly, but we're going to talk about taking the gospel to some people in a certain industry. So if you have kids, you may want to go ahead and kind of skip over this next part. All right. So here's what I was thinking about when I was thinking about Peter taking the gospel to the Gentiles. What would be a similarity that we have in our culture today that Peter had in like his version of taking the gospel to the Gentiles? Like, and I was like, what's some place I would never think to take the gospel? And I happened, you know, I was driving down to girls camp and in the seedy kind of outskirts of our town, we have several strip clubs. Right. And I was like, okay, yeah, the gospel, I would never think to take the gospel to a strip club. Well, then I remembered an article that I had read a couple years ago, and it's about an organization called Scarlet Hope. Scarlet Hope is an organization It's based out of Louisville, Kentucky. And it started with these three little church ladies and they were driving past, it was a strip club and they drove past it and they said, you know what? I need to take Jesus to the women who work in there. And so these three little church ladies They pulled their hair up in a ponytail. They put on some turtlenecks, didn't wear any makeup, and they went into the strip club. They went and they sat at the bar. They got them some 7-Ups, and um, they were talking to the bartender, and they're like, we want to bring dinner in for your girls, the girls that work here. And the bartender was like, "Uh, yeah, no, you're going to have to talk to the owner about that. This is weird. And they're like, no, no, we just want to bring dinner in for you guys. Well, after a while, this sister that was sitting there, and also this is not from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is a different Christian denomination. But so the sister that's sitting there, she feels prompted by the Spirit to get up and go talk to this man that's sitting kind of down the bars away. And so she gets up and she goes talks to him and is like, hey, you know, I'm here from this church and I really want to bring dinner in for the ladies that work here. 
And he said, well, I'm the owner and I think that would be fine. Like, do you want us to pay for it? Like, what, what do you want to go on? She's like, no, I just really want to bring dinner into the ladies. And he's like, okay. So she and her two friends that were there, they made homemade fried chicken and macaroni and cheese and broccoli casserole. And like, I'm sure there was like hash brown casserole because that's a big Southern staple too. And like all the good Southern food you can think of. And they brought it into the girls, right? And they started this thing where every Thursday night they would come in and they brought dinner to the ladies who worked there. They would tell the ladies, you know, they just wanted to be their friends. And so they would just kind of go backstage and talk to them while they were doing their hair and makeup and stuff like that. And they just brought them dinner. Like, that's all they did for a while. Until one Thursday night, um, you know, they're bringing dinner in. And one of the girls said, hey, can I get a ride home? And so, you know, the lady who was kind of leading this, this ministry was like, okay, sure, I'll take you home. And so she takes this girl back to her apartment. And walking into the apartment, she realized that the only thing in this apartment that this girl had was like a Disney princess sleeping bag. And that's where she slept. And she used her like duffel bag that she took to work with her as her pillow. Like that's where she put her head. And that's the only thing she had in her apartment. And at this point, the sister was like, okay, these girls need more than love and fried chicken. Like they need much more than that. And so she started this outreach and they started meeting at her church. Every Thursday night, the girls would come in and they'd learn about Jesus and how he loves them. They'd learn life skills. They started working towards their GEDs and the like ministry that she kind of created around this became so popular that it started spreading out to other clubs in the Louisville region. Apparently there's 23 clubs in Louisville and out of those 23, this ministry, which is called Scarlet Hope, not Scarlet because of the Scarlet Letter or anything like that. It's called Scarlet because of the sash that Jesus wears in Matthew. Out of the 23 clubs in Louisville, Scarlet Hope is in 22 of them. And the one club they're not in, they got kicked out of because they were reforming so many of the girls in the club. The club owner got mad and said, you're taking too many of my ladies. You got to go. And so he kicked them out. But so they do this whole thing where they go in and they just love the girls that are in there and they bring God's love to them. And then if the girls are interested, they can come to church with them. They take care of them. They teach them job skills. They've got a bakery in Louisville called Scarlet Hope Bakery. And they teach them job skills. They get them trained. They give them counseling because a lot of these girls who are in the situation have been through trauma and abuse at an early age. A lot of them have children. They give them child care and they do counseling for the children because these children have already gone through trauma and abuse and they try and stop the cycle from happening to these children. And they just try and really take them out of that situation that they've gotten themselves in and teach them Christ. Like they preach Jesus and they love them. You know, there's an article, it's in the Gospel Coalition, which is like a Christian newsletter. I'll post it on my Facebook and my blog and stuff like that. But it talks all about this ministry that she's done. But it says, you know, there were times where it was really hard and it was really awkward. And there's one, you know, span where in the span of three months, she had five of her girls die of overdoses. You know, so this is not pretty. It's not always pretty. It's a really ugly place and a really ugly kind of walk that sometimes she has to do. But it's taking the gospel to people who need it most. And I have to think it was like Peter, kind of the same mindset that Peter was in at this point. What? You want me to take the gospel where? Like, are you serious? And so that was like the, probably the most modern correlation I could come up with for, you know, Peter taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And I love the idea of this ministry. It's not something that I can do right now in my life, but it's not something I'm opposed to maybe sometime down the road because, you know, we're all God's children. And just because we've been in 
you know, some hard stuff and we've ended up in places we've never thought we would end up doesn't mean we're not deserving of God's love. And that's what I see when I go in and I see, you know, God is no respecter of persons and we need to be reaching out to anyone we can. And so I just love that example of that sister reaching out to those who really needed him. That's really what I thought of when I started reading about God as no respecter of persons. Um, Okay, next question and come follow me. Like the Jews who look down on those who are not of the seed of Abraham, do you ever catch yourself making unkind or uninformed assumptions about someone who is different from you? And, you know, like my example before, that would be a way that I would make an unkind or uninformed assumption about the girls that work in those establishments. But another example I could think of was maybe like 12 years ago. Yeah, it was about 12 years ago. There was a new girl that came to our ward. And I say girl, but she was like maybe in her early 20s. Yeah, she was in her early 20s. Just recently got married to a guy in our ward and she moved here from Utah. I love Utah. I think it's a beautiful place. I had some really great experiences at BYU, but I definitely have some unkind and uninformed assumptions about people who live in Utah. If you live in Utah, I am so sorry. Like that is something I am working on. And actually this podcast has really helped me out because I've gotten to know a lot of people in Utah, um, even more so than I did at BYU. And it's kind of breaking down those false assumptions that I've had about, you know, Utah culture and things like that. She moved here from Utah. And so I was like, oh, she's, she's just going to have that attitude. I totally judged her and just wrote her off. Like, I don't even need to get to know her. Like, this is just ridiculous. And so I just kind of wrote her off. Well, we got called to work in a young woman's presidency at the same time. And so I got to know her a little bit better and found out she was like the most down-to-earth person that I had ever met. The most loving, the most kind. And today she's one of my best friends. And I always think back to that first impression that I had of her where I immediately rushed to judgment. And I was so, like, in my mind, rude. I'm like, oh, and I could just kick myself every time I think about that because she's such a wonderful person and she was really struggling in her testimony of the gospel, but instead was so humble and so kind and so gracious and such a good example to me of being Christ-like and I just rushed to judgment. And so to me, when I see this, I catch myself making unkind and uninformed assumptions about someone who's different from me. I need to overcome this tendency. And that's what Come Follow Me asks next. It might be interesting to try a simple activity for the next few days. Whenever you interact with someone, try to think to yourself, this person is a child of God. As you do this, what changes do you notice in the way you think about and interact with others? I found myself, even today, I was at lunch with a friend and we were talking about a common coworker, and I found myself kind of loosening up, I guess, on my judgments of her. I prejudged her really harshly, I think. And so talking to this friend, I'm like, you know, this woman, number one, she's a child of God. Number two, she's trying to do the best she can with what she has. And number three, she really does care about the kids. And so kind of letting myself kind of, I guess, pull back from the prejudgments I had made about this person and looking forward to working with her in a a professional relationship um, is really kind of the outcome that came from that. So I'm going to keep working on that, especially as I start my new job over the next couple weeks. You know, I'm moving schools. I'm moving to a new school. So there's going to be all kinds of new people, all kinds of new first impressions, and just really to see them as children of God, not necessarily what their first impression might be. So next section and come follow me. 
Heavenly Father teaches me line upon line through revelation. Oh, yes, he does. All right, come follow me, says, When Peter saw the vision described in Acts 10, he struggled at first to understand it and doubted in himself what it should mean. You know, oh, no, Lord, say it's not so kind of thing. Yet the Lord gave Peter greater understanding as Peter sought it. As you read Acts 10, 11, and 15, notice how Peter's understanding of this vision deepened over time. Acts 10 is where he actually gets the vision, and he's kind of like arguing with the Lord, like, no, I'm not taking it to the Gentiles. Are you kidding me? Like, no, right? Okay, so we've got that. Then in Acts 11, he goes back and he's recounting to the other disciples there in the church what happened in Joppa at Simon the Tanner's house, the vision that he had. And in 11.15 we read, And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us in the beginning. He's talking about the Gentiles. When he's talking to the Gentiles, the Holy Ghost fell on them. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how he had said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the like gift, as he did unto us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I, that I could withstand God? And when they heard these things, they held their peace, this is the people in Jerusalem, and glorified God, saying, Then God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Okay, so Peter has the revelation that the gospel needs to go to the Gentiles. Yes, okay, we've got that. And then he's talking to the Gentiles, so he's acting on this revelation that he's been given by the Lord. And as he's acting on it, he remembered the word of the Lord. No, the Holy Ghost spoke to his mind and helped kind of prompt that remembrance, right? How John had baptized with water and then said, you will baptize with the Holy Ghost. So that was kind of prompted from the Holy Ghost. So I see a little bit of revelation built onto his initial revelation there. And then you see also kind of the reasoning that he's doing in his mind. And again, I believe that's the Lord kind of pushing buttons. In 17, he says, For then as God gave them the light gift, as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? So he's reasoning it out in his mind. And the other thing I like about 17 here, that I could withstand God, is all of a sudden he realizes his relationship to his Heavenly Father. That his relationship to his Heavenly Father is not to question. His relationship is to do. And so he realizes that in questioning God or like saying, oh, no, Lord, you know, that was not correct. And so he's like, who am I to say that? And so we see a little bit of growth there coming from Peter through this revelation. And then we see those who had doubted, like, really, you want to take the gospel to the Gentiles? In 18, that they held their peace and they glorified God. They also were able to kind of fill that testimony. They they heard these things and they held their peace. I like to think that they felt the peace. They felt the Holy Spirit, that this was indeed a revelation from God. I like those verses because it really shows the growth that we see in Peter coming from instead of like, oh, no, 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 all the way until like, yeah, this is going to happen, guys, and it's going to be good. All right, and then in Acts 15, which is the next chapter that they tell us to look at, they're in Antioch. And Antioch is like a really interesting place. (laughs) Okay, so if you have Jerusalem, which is like, you know, the core of the religious kind of area, and you have Rome and Alexandria, which is core of like kind of the intellect or the free thinkers of the period, then you have Antioch, which is kind of like the downtown Las Vegas. Uh, you've got like this ancient, you know, Middle Eastern area that you've got kind of going on. There's lots of transport and, you know, goods traded back and forth. So it's kind of a commerce city. 
because of that, it had people coming in from all over, so it had all kinds of like different varying bad stuff going on in it. The saints in Antioch have kind of some different differing opinions. There's some interesting things that happen with the church there in Antioch. And this is one of the things that happened. So in, there in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. Antioch is having fits about this whole gospel to the Gentile thing. They send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. Hey, go check with the guys in Jerusalem and make sure they know what they're doing because we are not taking the gospel to the Gentiles. So they send Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem to figure out what to do. In 7, it reads, And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made a choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of his disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved, even as they. Oh, I love this. I love this, Peter. This is an awesome little soliloquy that Peter has going on here. And so what I see here is instead of Peter kind of reasoning out in his mind, like we saw kind of Acts 11, this is Peter bearing testimony of the revelation, of the love of God, and of the grace of God, and how that is made manifest through this revelation. Specifically, I love the part where he talks about, Why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the necks of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? And this is like the whole, do we need to, you know, circumcise them? Do we not circumcise them? Because they're really not excited about getting circumcised. You know, that kind of thing. Do they need to become a Jew first and then a Christian? Or can they go straight from being a Gentile and become a Christian? was kind of the question that was going on. And so he's saying, why tempt you them? Like, why would you ask them to follow the law of Moses when we ourselves couldn't even follow it, which is why we have Christ? We have a higher law here. Why would you ask someone to follow a lower law? Like, why would you do this? That's what he's asking. And then 11, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. And guess what? So will the Gentiles. And I love that. I love that so much. So that's what we have going on there in 15. All right, come follow me. Asks, how have you sought and received greater understanding from God when you had questions? And I was trying to think of different times in my life because I think revelation comes in different ways. We're going to talk about that in a minute because come follow me references a really good article about that. But the experience in my life I thought of probably the most was when, you know, I think even those of us who are born in the church, we still have moments where we experience conversion, right? And I found my big conversion moments, I guess, like the bedrock of my conversion moments happened while I was at BYU. I'm living on my own for the first time. And, you know, I'm in Utah, which is a different culture from where I'm used to being. And I'm kind of just kind of floundering because I'm like, I don't feel like I belong like these people, but I kind of believe like these people. But my, you know, I've been raised this way to believe like these people, but I don't know if I bought all the way into it. And, you know, I just have lots of questions. I'm like, do I really want to live this way for the rest of my life? Because if you are going to live the lifestyle in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you better believe it. Because (laughs) there's a lot of things you have to do and a lot of ways that you're different from the rest of the world that it would be very hard to do if you did not believe, right? So you better believe it wholeheartedly if you're going to go, you know, all the way in. So I was like, I was at that point where I'm like trying to decide, I'm like, am I all the way in? Am I not? And like, you know how music gets stuck in your head? 
Well, I had this period of a couple of days where it wasn't music that got stuck in my head. It was a phrase. And it was the phrase was, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Over and over again. Like it just played in my head. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So, I mean, I'm like walking in the Harold B. Lee Library at BYU. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Like up the stairs. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. You know, over and over and over again. I'm like, why is this phrase not leaving me alone? Like, what is the deal? I happened to come across a book there in the Harold B. Lee Library by M. Russell Ballard. And the title of the book is When Thou Art Converted, Continuing Our Search for Happiness. Okay. And I'm going to read you what Deseret Book has written about this book. Okay. This is the summary for When Thou Art Converted by M. Russell Ballard. Being a Christian, being spiritually born of God is not a Sunday only thing, writes Elder M. Russell Ballard of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, nor is it limited to our service and associations in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In When Thou Art Converted, Elder Ballard shows us that when we manifest our belief in Christ and our acceptance of Him as our Savior by the way we live our lives, the most important way we stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places is in the daily choices that we make. This important volume, a follow-up to the author's well-loved work, Our Search for Happiness, gives 11 valuable keys to help us stand as witnesses of God. They are to build and strengthen our own testimonies, recognize our eternal identity as a child of God, cultivate balance, learning to recognize and respond to the Spirit, learning the lessons of the past, standing for truth and righteousness, serving others, honoring the priesthood, honoring womanhood, following the prophet, and focusing on the family. These keys of discipleship will bless us and others in the search for happiness and peace, a search that becomes ever more rewarding and fulfilling as we endure to the end with those we love, serving the Savior who loved us first. And so that was the book that I read. And to this day, I cannot tell you what was in that book. <laughs> like, that sounds like a really great summary. And I need to go back and reread it because it sounds awesome. But the one thing that stood out to me from this book that I remember is there is a part where he talks about the gospel, when you get down to the bare bones, is black and white. Either Christ lived and died for you or he did not. And you have to make that choice. And then after you make that choice, you get to make another one. Either the Book of Mormon is true or it is not. And then you get to make another one. Either President Nelson, or at that time, I think it was President Hinckley, is a prophet of God or he is not. And you get to make those choices. And you make those choices. And once you've made those choices, you live those choices. And so, you know, I'm going through this, kind of chewing through all this. This is over the course of a couple of weeks. And I have a friend I worked with there in the library um, in the periodical section. And I had a friend that I worked with at the time. And she told me she was doing this, like, lesson for her Relief Society there in her ward. And she said, you know, I had to do this experiment where it was like, you know, live the gospel absolutely to the letter, everything we're supposed to do, scriptures for 30 minutes a day, saying your prayers every day like you're supposed to, going to all your meetings like you're supposed to, you know, all in, live this way for six weeks and see if at the end of six weeks you're not happier than you were before. And my friend was telling me that she had done this little experiment and she was happier. I'm like, okay, right. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it, but I'm not even going to do it for six weeks. I'm just going to do it for two. Like, I'm just going to do it for two. I don't even think I can make it the whole six weeks. And so I did it for two weeks, and I found that, you know what? At the end of two weeks, I was happier than I was before. And so I did it for two more weeks, and then two more weeks, and two more weeks, and on and on and on. And that is really the moment 
between that book, When Thou Art Converted, that I really saw the conversion in my own testimony start to happen. When, you know, I've got the words and the things that are making sense to me that I'm finding in this book of M. Russell Ballard's, and then I start living it. Living the gospel of Jesus Christ, recognizing my identity as a child of God and the identity of others around me who are also children of God. And that's really the moment where I feel like I started my trek on conversion and I began becoming converted. And then once I became converted like that, I was able to reach out to others and start strengthening my brethren. You know, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So that was really a moment in my life where I sought and received greater understanding from God when I had questions. You know, the question I took to God was, I'm not sure this is true. Like, I don't know if I can live this way the rest of my life without knowing it's true. I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what sources to go to. I don't know. And, you know, line by line, he gave me that little phrase that repeated in my mind for like days. And I found this book and I'm reading this book. And then all of a sudden I'm working with this really awesome friend. And she's telling me all about this really awesome Relief Society lesson that she just happened to be working on. And this experiment she did in her life that she just happened to do at this point. And, you know, again, it was just like line upon line things click into place. And that was one of the times where I sought and received really great understanding from God when I had questions. So that was my come follow me. All right. Acts 10. This is the next question. Acts 10, 11 and 15 recount instances in which the Lord directed his servants through revelation. It might help to record what you find regarding revelation as you read through these chapters. And how does the spirit speak to you? Okay, this is what I was talking about. We're going to talk about Revelation. So if you look underneath it, it says, See also, and it's got gospel topics, Ronald A. Drasband, like the different, you know, things you can look up to kind of further your study. Definitely recommend the Revelation in Gospel Topics at topics.lds.org. It is awesome, guys. Like, the whole article is just amazing. So I'm going to read you a couple of different things that really stood out to me as I read through this article in Revelation from Gospel Topics. All right, so Revelation is communication from God to his children. This guidance comes through various channels according to the needs and circumstances of individuals, families, and church as a whole. Okay, so I've seen this happen in my own life. Like I said, in that particular instance at BYU, it came line upon line over the course of several weeks. Sometimes it comes to me like a lightning bolt and I get hit in the back of the head like a two by four. And other times I just know, like I just know. You know, recently I was called to our stake primary presidency. And when I was called, I actually knew, like, pretty much several weeks before the call came, that it was coming. The minute that the previous state primary president had announced that she was moving, within probably two hours or so after she announced she's moving, I'm like, they're going to rearrange the presidency and I'm going to be in it. And I was like, and I know who the president's going to be. And so, like, even to the point that I had a um, Temple Recommend Renewal interview with my bishop, and I'm in the bishop interview, and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm doubting myself, because I'm like, did I really feel that, that from the Spirit? Like, is that is this really real? Because no one from the state presidency has contacted me yet. I don't know. So I'm in this interview with my bishop, and I'm like, so, you know, our state primary president's moving away, right? He's like, yeah, I'd heard that. I'm like, I just need you to know, I feel some tremors in the force. <laughs> <laughs> my spidey senses are tingling. I don't know what other pop culture metaphors I can work in here, but just something is coming. He's like, yeah, that will make some major changes. I don't think he was picking up what I was putting down because I think he was really shocked when they told him I was being called to the, the presidency. It took a couple of weeks until finally, you know, the state president called and yeah, it happened. And, and I was like, and this person is the president, right? He's like, yeah, how did you know? Did someone tell you? I'm like, yeah, someone told me. A heavenly father told me. I knew that. So 
I mean, I just, I just knew. I just knew. But if I contrast that to the time where I was called as the primary president for my ward, oh my gosh, like that came out of the blue, knocked me over, kicked me in the stomach, like, (laughs) and I was like out, like, no, 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 no. I was out on it. I was like, this is not happening. No way. No way. And it wasn't until I was out in the parking lot and just kind of thought, well, what if that is you know, started like, okay, then the spirit kind of worked with me and was like, okay, so this can happen. So two different callings, two very different experiences of revelation confirming the calling in my mind, right? It's interesting to me because most of the time I know beforehand, like I'll have some kind of inkling in this particular case, my most recent calling, it was probably the strongest inkling, I guess, and the longest inkling that I have ever had. Um, and it was interesting because again, I doubted myself multiple times. Like, am I really feeling this? Because no one from the state presidency is contacting me. And as I was going along, I'm like, Heavenly Father, I know you've already told me once that this is going to happen, but I just need reassurance. Not because I don't believe in you or I don't believe what you're telling me, but because I'm human and I doubt myself. I doubt what I feel sometimes. My father in heaven is so good because he does know that. He knows that I doubt myself. I'm not doubting him. I'm doubting me. And so in those moments is when he reaches down, he's like, oh yeah, he kind of pats me on the head. He's like, yeah, you received that revelation. Yeah, here you go. Here you go. I'll give you a little bit more. Yes, yes, you, you got it. You got it. You know, he kind of pats me on the head. So that goes back to the Revelation article from topics at LDS.org. And it says, you know, this guidance comes through various channels according to our needs and our circumstances. And it's what I needed in the circumstance, right? Going on with the article. It says, we can receive revelation to help us with our specific personal needs, responsibilities, questions, and to help strengthen our testimony. I love that because that is exactly what Revelation does. It helps us with specific personal needs. It helps us with our responsibilities, whether they be to our family or in church. It helps us with questions we might have and helps strengthen our testimony. That's Those are the purposes of Revelation right there. Okay, continuing on, I'm jumping around from paragraph to paragraph a little bit. And it says, however, most revelations to leaders and members of the church come through whisperings of the Holy Ghost, as opposed to like giant visions and dreams and angels appearing. Instead, it comes through quiet whisperings of the Holy Ghost. Um, I will tell you in my life personally, it has always come through the quiet whisperings of the Holy Ghost, except for two times when I've had dreams and It wasn't like the dreams were really spectacular or like an angel appearing in my dream or anything like that. Or it was like a really big earth shaking thing. It was just a dream, I think, because I wasn't listening to the spirit in my regular everyday life. And so the Lord was like, okay, we really got to get her attention. (laughs) And so I had the dreams. But um, it's only happened twice. All right. Next little part from the, the article. Quiet spiritual promptings may not seem as spectacular as visions or angelic visitations, but they are just as powerful and lasting and life-changing. Those quiet promptings. The witness of the Holy Ghost makes an impression on the soul that is more significant than anything we could ever see or hear. Through such revelations, we will receive lasting strength to stay true to the gospel and to help others do the same. And then it goes into this whole part about preparing to receive revelation and what we can do for that. Um, It says, pray for guidance. And I will tell you, before 
every single one of these podcast episodes, I pray for guidance um, on what to say, what not to say. And there have been times where I've been saying stuff and I'll stop mid-sentence and be like, mm, nope, I don't, I don't need to say that. I don't need to say that. We'll cut that out in post, you know. And I just stop talking and I go on to something else. Um, there's other times where I'm like, I did not even think of that, but I'm going to go ahead and roll with it and roll it on in here because... I feel like it needs to be here. So pray for guidance. It's going to direct you whether to stop or go, you know, kind of thing. And be reverent. Reverence is profound respect and love is what it says. And when we are reverent and peaceful, we invite revelation. And you guys probably can't tell, or you probably can't tell, I have kind of a goofy, fun personality, and I love being goofy and fun. And I definitely find I have to find the line between being goofy and fun and still being reverent to my Heavenly Father and being goofy and fun and being irreverent. And there's that line. And over the course of my life, I have definitely crossed that line on this podcast. There's probably been times where I've crossed that line. But I'm constantly learning and trying to stay within the bounds of reverence when I'm being goofy and fun. All right. So that's something I strive to work on. I struggle with it a little bit and I realize I do. Be humble. Humility is closely related to reverence. Okay. Keep the commandments. When we keep the commandments, we are prepared to receive, recognize, and follow the promptings of the Holy Ghost. Partake of the sacrament worthily. Oh, yes. The sacrament to me is the most holy time of my entire week. It is the most sacred time of my entire week. And I get some of the best revelation during those moments of quiet, during when I'm taking the sacrament that I get through my entire week. I love taking the sacrament. Study the scriptures every day. As we diligently study the scriptures, we learn from examples of men and women whose lives have been blessed as they followed the Lord's revealed will. I love reading the scriptures because, again, you do. You get that revelation. You get that testimony of other people's lives. But then also, there may be a verse, and you're reading it, and all of a sudden it hits you upside the head, and you're like, okay, I really needed that today, or I really needed this in my life. This is something that I've been wondering, and the Spirit kind of uses the scriptures to speak to us. You know, there's that whole saying where if you want to talk to God, pray, and if you want God to talk to you, read the scriptures. I totally believe that. Take time to ponder. When we take time to ponder the truths of the gospel, we open our mind and heart to the guiding influence of the Holy Ghost. We live in a very loud society. We constantly have stuff going on. We're constantly surrounded by technology and different distractions competing for our time. And taking time out of those distractions to just be at peace and to listen to the Holy Ghost, to ponder the truths of the gospel... That's when the Holy Ghost can really speak to us. Um, I've talked before, my quiet time is on my commute in in the mornings. I struggle because we're in the middle of summer right now, and so I don't have my commute um, because we're home for the summer. But my commute, when the school year starts back up again, I'll have that commute again. And I just drive into work without podcasts going, without music going, without audiobooks going. It's just quiet. And that's the time where I just really think and pray and talk to my Heavenly Father. Just talk to Him. That's what I do during that time. That's my time to ponder every day. When seeking specific guidance, we should study the matter out in our minds. At times, the Lord's communication will only come after we have studied a matter out in our minds. And I absolutely believe this, 100%. I think that the Lord trusts us. He trusts us to go out and find whatever answers we can find, put them together, and then take our end result to Him and say, Lord, is this correct? Go out and search for yourself. Find for yourself, like, what can I find about this particular question that I'm, you know, wondering about? I'm a librarian. I love to research. So this is something that's happened to me multiple times where I will go out and I'll research and I'll take it to the Lord. 
interestingly as well, there have been times where I will go out and I will research an issue to death. Like I will research like crazy and the Lord's just kind of waiting and waiting for me to come back up for air and say like, okay, Lord. And he's like, no, something totally different. An example of this is when we bought my car, the car that we bought, I currently drive. We bought it like two years ago. And (laughs) you know, the movies were like, they're hunting like maybe a murder suspect or something. And they've got like a bulletin board. They've got all the different pictures of all the different clues. And there's yarn connecting the different things. And like, it's like this big spider web conspiracy theory thing. Like that is what the wall of my kitchen looked like the week that I was shopping for a car. (laughs) Okay. I knew all the car buying apps. I knew all the car websites. And I mean, I was on like the internet researching cars at like two and three o'clock in the morning. Like I was a person possessed. Again, I'm a librarian because I like to research, and sometimes <laughs> I get a little over the top on the research, okay? And so I was literally like crazy eyes, like it was not good. <laughs> My husband was even like, we need to take a break from car searching, I feel. And, you know, the whole time I'm like praying like, Heavenly Father, lead me to the right answer. Heavenly Father, lead me to the right car that's going to be good for our family and within our budget. And Heavenly Father, help me find this, help me find this. And, you know, I wasn't feeling anything. I wasn't feeling like I was being guided any certain way. And so, you know, thanks to my husband being like, okay, you need to take a step back. (laughs) I was like, okay, I do need to take a step back. And so I took a couple days off. You know, I'm like, I'm just not going to look for anything for a couple days. I'm just going to take a couple days off. And when I came back, you know, I pulled up my little car buying app on my phone and um, plugged in the stuff I was looking for and boom, there's the car. And I was like, that's it. That's the one. And my husband's like, you haven't even driven it. You don't know. I'm like, yes, I do. Um, I know that's the one. And so we went and we drove it and yes, that was the one. And it was like crazy priced in our budget. And I mean, it just worked out really well, but it wasn't until I took a step back and I tried studying the matter out in my own mind, but it turns out that sometimes when I study the matter in my own mind, my mortal mind can only comprehend so much and it doesn't pay attention to the workings of God. And so sometimes, yeah, study it out in your own mind, but also listen to God you know, and look for his peace and his reassurance and take a step back and let him kind of enter the equation a little bit. That's my guidance to you anyways. And it actually goes along with the next piece of advice that this article has, which is patiently seek God's will because God reveals himself in his own time, in his own way, and according to his own will. In that situation where I was searching for cars, for whatever reason, he didn't feel like he needed to intervene until I got to the point where I stepped back and asked for his help. You know, I I guess had that humility to say, I can't do this on my own. I know I have mad, crazy research skills, but I cannot, for whatever reason, magically bring up the car that my family needs at this point. And he could. That was when I patiently needed to seek his will. And I'm grateful that I have family and like my husband who recognizes like, okay, you're getting a little like crazy right now. We need to take the crazy down a couple of notches. You need to calm down and then you need to come back to this later and seek God's will at a later point when you're a little bit (laughs) more normal (laughs) instead of crazy. Okay. Okay, The next section in Come Follow Me, I'm excited about. I love this because, you know, I'm a word nerd and this is all about words. So here we go. The section is called, I am a Christian because I believe in and follow Jesus Christ. And it says, what is significant about a person being called a Christian? And I love this question because in the South, 
Everybody wants to know if you're a Christian. That's like the first question that I got asked in elementary school. Well, no, the first question I got asked in elementary school was whether I go for Alabama or Auburn. Those are our two big football teams here. Um, I go for Alabama. Roll Tide, y'all. But beyond that, if I was a Christian was like the next question all the other little kids wanted to know. You know, what's your name? Do you go for Alabama or Auburn? And are you a Christian? Like those are the three things that they ask when you're in elementary school here and you meet new kids for the first time. And so at first I was like, uh, I go to church. I believe in Jesus. Does that make me a Christian? I don't know if I'm a Christian. Because I had never really heard that terminology. You know, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we don't really use the term Christian a whole lot. We are, yes. Um, but it wasn't a term I was really familiar with. And so I would ask my little friends, well, what does that mean? And they're like, do you believe in Jesus? I'm like, yes, I believe in Jesus. Okay, you're a Christian. Cool. Cool. Well, then I get into high school a little bit later and they start, you know, there's some anti-Mormon stuff going on in some of the local churches. And I find out I'm not a Christian, according to them, even though I believe in my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he redeemed me and I've been baptized in his name. Um, And that's what I always tell them, you know, when they're like, are you sure you're a Christian? I'm Yes, I've been baptized in his name. I believe in my Savior, and he, I believe that he redeemed me, right? And that's what you need to be a Christian. Come on, you're taking on the name of Jesus Christ. Well, the Christians were first called Christians in Antioch, and this is the first time that they were called Christians, and it wasn't a positive thing. Like here in the South, you want to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian, then, you know, you got some social awkwardness kind of coming your way. But this wasn't a positive thing. In Antioch. In Antioch, they were actually called this kind of made fun of following Christ, right? From the Enduring Word Biblical Commentary website. I love the Enduring Word. It's awesome. It is a just non-denominational Christian commentary on the Bible. You can check it out. But they say about Christian, the word Christian, in Latin, the ending I-A-N meant the party of. So a Christian was of the party of Jesus. Which party of Jesus? That sounds like an awesome party. The party of Jesus. I love it. So being Christians was sort of like saying Jesusites or Jesus people, describing the people associated with Jesus Christ. Also, soldiers under particular generals in the Roman army identified themselves by their general's name plus adding I-A-N to the end. So a soldier under Caesar would call himself a Caesarean. Soldiers under Jesus Christ could be called Christians. I love that. That's awesome, right? And what a cool name. Now, the disciples have been called a lot of things. In Acts 1.15, they'd been called disciples. In Acts 9.13, they were called saints. Acts 5.14, believers. Acts 6.3, they were called brothers. Acts 5.32, they were called witnesses. And Acts 9.2, they were called followers of the way. But... Here in Acts eleven twenty six, they're called Christians, the party of Jesus, right? That's what we are all about. And what is significant about a person being called a Christian? That we are followers of Christ. You know, every Sunday when we take the sacrament, if you listen to those sacrament prayers, we are literally taking upon us the name of Jesus Christ. Um, I think about, there was a time when I got my very first car and I put a big old BYU bumper sticker on it. And so as I was driving around everywhere I went, I'm like, people are going to think like, this is how people from BYU drive. This is how people from BYU park. This is how people from BYU turn when they use their turn signal, you know. Okay, as a teenager, as impressionable, just, you know, my brain works in funny ways. I understand that. 
But I feel like sometimes, especially when we tell other people, you know, our beliefs and things like that, that all of a sudden they're looking at you like, this is how a person from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints behaves. This is how a person from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints believes. This is how a person from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints talks. You know, like that's what they're looking at. And so I feel a great responsibility to represent my church and my Heavenly Father and my Savior really well, right? M. Russell Ballard had a really good talk called The Importance of a Name. And in it, he says, Do we realize how blessed we are to take upon the name of God's beloved and only begotten Son? Do we understand how significant that is? The Savior's name is the only name under heaven by which man can be saved. That's how significant that name is. So not only do we take it on us to represent him to others, but we take it upon us to be saved using his name and his good name and his example and following him is how we are saved in his grace, right? So I love that quote from Elder Ballard. Come follow me asks, consider the significance of names. For instance, what does your family name mean to you? Okay, so my name has an interesting history. Um, Lexi is my nickname. My real name is Alexis. Um, And the way I got my name is, you know, I was born back in the day before they did all the fancy ultrasounds so you knew what gender your baby was going to be. But my mom and dad were convinced I was going to be a boy when my mom was pregnant, right? And so they had a boy name picked out. They had a blue nursery. They had all these little blue clothes. Like, they were ready to go for a boy. And then I show up, and I'm a girl. (laughs) And they're like, uh, okay. We don't have a girl name picked out. And so my dad, who loves music, he's like a classic rock music lover, Kansas, Beatles, Pink Floyd, that's his jam, right? So he has a song that he's found called Alexis by the James Gang. And the first line to the song is, Alexis, I want to thank you for a perfect Southern day. And he kind of had that in his mind, and he's like, we're going to name her Alexis. And so that is how I got my name. I was named after a song. And I've always loved that story um, because it makes me feel unique and it makes me feel special. And when we become Christ's, when we take his name upon us, he loves us in a way that is unique to us and is special to us. And he loves us in a way that it makes us feel known, which is what my name does for me. It makes me feel known. And that makes me feel known by my Heavenly Father when I take upon the name of Christ, that my relationship with Him is personal. And it's not the same relationship that He has with everybody else, because I believe He ministers and loves each one of us uniquely according to our needs. And that's what I get from taking upon His name. Um, The next question, Come Follow Me, asks, which this is a question I have to kind of talk myself around a lot. It's, why is the name of the church today important? And the reason that this bothers me so much is because from a PR standpoint, a nine-word name is a nightmare. (laughs) Like, a total nightmare. Um, Social media standpoint, total nightmare. If you've ever tried to do any sort of branding with a nine-word name, like, are you kidding me? Like, that's awful, right? But President Boyd K. Packer discussed the importance of the name of the church in last April's General Conference. He said, Obedient to Revelation... We call ourselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints rather than the Mormon Church because we are obedient to Revelation. And that's all it took for me. We are obedient to Revelation. Yes, got it. I will use the full name of the church, right? Elder Ballard says, I have thought a lot about why the Savior gave the nine-word name to his restored church. It may seem long, 
But if we think of it as a descriptive overview of what the church is, it suddenly becomes wonderfully brief, candid, and straightforward. How can any description be more direct and clear, and yet expressed in such few words? Every word is clarifying and indispensable. The word the indicates the unique position of the restored church among the religions of the world. The church, right? We are the church, the only one. The words Church of Jesus Christ declare that it is His church. In the Book of Mormon, Jesus taught, And how be it my church, save it be called by my name. For if a church be called in Moses' name, then it be Moses' church. Or if it be called in the name of a man like Mormon, then it be the church of the man. But if it be called in my name, then it is my church. If it so be that they are built upon my gospel. Then, of Latter-day explains that this is the same church as the church that Jesus Christ established during his mortal ministry, but it is restored in the latter days. We know there was a falling away, or an apostasy, necessitating the restoration of his true and complete church in our time. Saints means that its members follow him and strive to do his will, keep his commandments, and prepare once again to live with him and our Heavenly Father in the future. Saints simply refers to those who seek to make their lives holy by covenanting to follow Christ. All right, and that is where our Come Follow Me ends for this week, and I know we are, like, way out of time. I was going to talk about some stuff in the family, home evening, and scripture study stuff. Maybe we'll have to do, like, an extra, you know, bonus content thing. Maybe I'll do that in a minute, but... um, For now, we've run out of time. I hope you guys have an awesome week. I hope you keep reading your scriptures. I'll see you here again next week. Bye, y'all. Lexus, thank you for the pleasant southern days. Spent on the levee, throwing pennies in the bay. And talking to the rich folks on the big boats that pass that way You were just a young girl And I just could not stay Alexis, I can't remember How we met back then Was on my way to Atlanta And on that road again Not really poor Had money just not to spend You were just a young girl And I was in need of a friend Well, Alexis always used to talk about Leaving your hometown Heading on the south Maybe down to New and you wanted me to help you out and you were just a young girl And I was just a hobo Had my doubts Alexis, I did not want to I want to leave you there this life we live is so unfair I wanted to take you with me But I did not dare You were just a young girl And I couldn't pay your fare 
Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Have a question or comment? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.